I have a particular verse, which is from the passage that we're going to look at this week, which holds a, a very strong memory association for me. I've had Austin already talking to us this morning about a particular passage, a particular truth, and how it's attached to a particular memory um, that he has as a child. I, I have something similar. I have a very distinct moment, and it's uh, frozen in time as I sat on uh, some very coarse volcanic sand on a deserted beach in the Solomon Islands. I was 13 years old and I was on a mission exposure trip with an organisation called Teen Missions. Some of the people here have been involved with that over the years. Uh, my team had been sent out on a work project and this trip that I was on was certainly no holiday. Uh, we worked from sun up to sundown. We would have a break through the middle of the day, very hot monsoonal weather. And so the coolest times of the day were very early and very late. Uh, five days a week, we worked. On Saturdays, we spent doing market outreach in local villages. And because of the remote area that we were in, most of those villages required hours worth of trekking through jungle uh, to get to. Sundays were spent assisting local churches in our region. We had no time off. But as a reward for our hard work, the team leaders had organised an R&R day, rest and relaxation day. And there was a local guy who acted as our guide and he took us to a remote secluded beach that looked like it had sprung to life off a postcard. Uh, it really was phenomenal. There was white sand, I can remember, when we pulled up. We were back, sitting in the back of a truck. Um, white sand spread over a little cove that we were in. And um, ringed around that cove were you know, coconut trees and the jungle sort of just seemed to come down out of the mountains and just meet onto the sand. And the water was crystal clear and there was the little reef just out off the beach. And I can remember the whole team, we were so excited uh, just to get there. And then, as we were sort of getting ready and getting out of the truck, our guide said, oh, just behind the beach, up into that sort of bit of overgrowth there, um, it might be worth having a little look. And there were row after row of abandoned tanks, amphibious vehicles, troop carriers that had been left there by the US Army at the end of World War II, lined up on the beach and just left. It was cheaper for them just to write them off than to try and transport them back to the States after the end of the Pacific theater in World War II. I couldn't decide if I wanted to explore the beach or the ruins more. And I can remember everyone just stood there silently for a while and then they, we, we quickly dropped our bags and we got ready to go in and we were just about to jump into the water when all of a sudden our head leader announced, anyone here who has been on team missions knows where this is probably going, only people who are up to date with their memory verses may swim. 
And I just remember sitting down the sand and trying to hold back tears. I was 13, I was the youngest on the team. I was five verses behind schedule for that day. And of those five verses, there was one verse in particular that I had tried and tried to get right. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't get it right. We had to recite all of our verses in the King James Version, and they had to be word perfect. One word wrong, and we would say, they would say, no, try again later. So I remember sitting on that sand as I watched my teammates all go down, those that were up to date, I think there were about four or five of us that weren't. The rest of the team went down and started swimming, and I can remember just sitting there, and I, I worked on the other four that I needed to. Um, I have to admit, they went into that part of the brain which is just storing very short-term memory. Yeah. Recite it, forget it. And I remember spitting out the, the four verses that I, could, thought, uh, that I thought I could catch up on, and I, I did it, and I just needed one more. And I couldn't do it. I still couldn't do it. No matter how hard I tried, it just would not stick. And I ended up sitting on that beach alone. Everybody else went swimming. And I literally, and I mean not, not literally like everyone else today uses the word literally. Who, they use that word, but it actually means figuratively. I literally started to cry. Now, end of the story is, I did get to have a brief swim that day. I actually did get to go and explore some of the tanks, and I found some machine gun cartridges in an ammo box sitting behind a tank. I did have the idea that I might try and get that through customs and bring it home. Someone talked me out of that. Because I eventually memorised that verse. And guess which verse it was? Of all the 40 that I had to memorise that trip, guess which verse I now remember best? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 10.13. Exactly. 1 Corinthians 10.13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Key word, temptation, key word, faithfulness, right? That's the verse that I had to try and remember that day and has stuck with me ever since. It's also the verse that sits right in the passage that we're going to be looking at today. So I'm pretty excited to unpack this verse and those around it. I didn't know it then, when I was 13. I didn't know it then. But there is a lot riding on this verse. A lot. Far more than just whether you get to have a swim or not. All right? I must say, it took me a while to get over that. I was pretty dirty at my leaders. So let's dive in and have a closer look at this passage. Um, the whole passage that we want to look at is from verse 1 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That's where we're up to in our series. 
We're going to go all the way down to about verse 22. Um, and and to, to do this, this is one of those weeks where it's actually better for us to start at the end and then go back to the beginning. I think it's going to help us get to the heart of what I think Paul, ultimately what the Spirit of God is wanting us to capture today. So let's pray, ask the Lord's help, and then we're going to dive in and see if we can discern what Jesus is saying to us. Lord, we need your help. Um, We are powerless to discern spiritual things without you giving us a spiritual mind. So, Holy Spirit, we don't want to just read print on a page or pixels on our screen. We want to hear the life-transforming voice of Jesus today. So help us, we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going we're gonna to go to the, the, the end of this passage. So um, the end of this passage is from verse 15 down to verse 22. So find that in your text. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to look at from verse 15 to 22. It's my first point um, in, this, in this whole thing, but it's the last part of the passage that we have today. So what I want to do is read it. In fact, very soon um, I've got some helpers who are going to come and help set up something down here for me. If they want to get ready to do that, um, it won't be very long and you'll need to come in. So here's the, the point. I'm going to give you the summary of this passage or my little summary statement and then we'll read it together, okay? So the summary statement is that one body, one body joined by Jesus must not be divided, all right? That's the summary statement. One body joined by Jesus must not be divided. So I'm going to read from verse 15 down to verse 22. These guys are just going to set some things up here. You can watch them. That's fine. Um, But listen as well. Okay, verse 15 from the Christian Standard Bible says this, I am speaking as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice... They sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? That's God's Word. Now what I want you to do as they bring in the rest of this table elements here. We're just setting up what's fairly common to us as a church. We, we remember the Lord every week. Those of you who have been a part of this church for any period of time, we remember the Lord in a specific way. Um, 
it probably looks a little bit different to the way that Jesus set it up with his disciples in the upper room uh, when he inaugurated this feast. But over the years as a church, we have week by week set out either one table like we've got today. And then um, when COVID hit, we separated our tables all over the place and we, you know, we didn't have a central location and we would set up juice and um, bread or crackers, symbols. And, and now Paul is calling on us to think about these for a moment. So remember our, our main big um, summary statement. One body, one body, joined by Jesus, must not be divided. Now what I want to do is just sort of break down that one big reading into two little parts for a moment and just sort of focus in our attention on what Paul is trying to say to us and how this is going to relate to, I think, the main point, the, the big point of this passage that we'll get to towards the end. Uh, the first thing that he starts to talk about is that we have a very unique um, joining that we experience in the Lord's Supper, that we have a very unique joining. Just have a look at verse 15 again, and we, we won't read the whole thing, but I want you just to focus your attention on your Bibles in front of you, and he starts there by just saying, listen, I'm, I'm talking to sensible people. He says, I want you to think about this. I want you to judge for yourself what I'm saying. So I want you to do that today. I want you to look at these emblems and I want you to look at what they represent and I want you to consider what the Spirit of God is saying through Paul. The bread that we break. Now, if you've been coming along to this church for a while you'll see that um, what we often have here are rice crackers. Um, in all honesty, this is probably a little bit more similar to what Jesus would have had um, at the Passover feast. Unleavened bread, no yeast in it, um, probably not rice flour, probably not stuff that you've got to chew 50 times to try and swallow it. Um, but it certainly probably didn't look like this. But this is, this is a pretty um, westernised version of what we understand bread to be. All right? Nice tiger loaf, or what do you call these? Tiger loaf? Man, I know my breads. Um, Paul says, I want you to consider that. He asks us, right? The bread that we break. And so as a church, what we often do is we pause at some point, whether it's partway through the service, end of the service, something like that, and someone will give thanks for the bread. And we are. We're thankful for bread. We're thankful for the way the Lord is our provider. Um, the Lord's Prayer teaches us, give us this day our daily bread. We, we call out, even as wealthy Western nation like Australia, we can lose sight of the fact that reality is, is if God doesn't put food on our table, we starve. And so that sense of calling out to God in thankfulness for our bread, but Jesus takes a very common element like bread, a staple part of our diet. And at the communion service inaugurated by the Passover, that upper room, not long before Jesus' own body was broken on the cross, he took bread, gave thanks for it, and broke it. A beautiful loaf that just gets torn, bent, ripped apart. 
it's, it's actually an incredibly graphic, visceral sort of illustration of what Jesus would do for us on the cross. The Bible describes the fact that when they were finished with Jesus, in both the lead up to the cross and those hours that he hung there, anyone that had known Jesus throughout the 30 years of his lifetime or so before that, if they'd been walking past that day, if there hadn't have been a sign banged onto that post to say who that was, no one would have recognised him. He was that badly torn. So the bread gets broken. And what we do as a church, what many churches have done over the centuries since that night, is that bread is then placed back on a plate or on multiple plates. And as a church... We invite you each week to come forward. We say, come forward and take part in communion. You walk forward and whether it's bread like this or whether it's uh, crackers that have been broken up, you walk forward and you give thanks yourself, maybe with your family, and you take one of these pieces and you partake it, You, you eat it. In a physical sense, this piece of bread becomes part of you. You're nourished by it. Symbolic of the fact that as we partake in Christ, as we join ourselves to Him, we, we really actually become part of who He is. That what He came to do, He nourishes us. There is a danger, of course, in one sense, where we might start to think that communion is a very personal thing between just you and Jesus. And look, I get that. To a certain degree, it is. But I want you to notice what Paul says here. Paul says, the bread that we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many... We become one as we, as a church sharer. The bread that we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body since all of us share the one bread. And so communion is not only something very personal in your worship. Communion is also an incredible unifying, unity emblem where we, look at us all, from all different backgrounds. I mean, if you took the moment, if you were brave enough and you turned around, you'd see some pretty strange people. And all the people that are seeing you strange, well, you're pretty strange too. All of us don't... We, none of us share a, a, a sort of a, a really beautiful story, really. Some of us look fairly put together on the outside. I can guarantee you it's a little bit of a veneer. You don't have to dig very far beneath the surface of any one of our lives and you find brokenness, grief, sorrow, dreams that have been put aside or dreams that have been taken from us. And yet here we are. Those that know Jesus have been called here today from whatever background, whatever story, and you have found in Christ life And so each week, you stand up, but guess what? We 
stand up. We stand up. And we walk forward together. And Paul says, the bread that we break, we break it together. Is it not a sharing where all of us are joining together and we are sharing in one body, one loaf, one body, one Jesus? There isn't another. And so all of us, as we share this, we experience something unifying. He says to us that we should consider the Israelites of old. They, um, they ate the sacrifices that they brought to the altar. And as they ate the sacrifices, they experienced a similar thing to what I've been talking about. And so the point of that is that we experience this very unique joining together that we experience when we take the bread. Very similarly... We take the cup. You know, it, it's pretty easy to, to lose sight of the fact that all this juice, little tiny single cups for very good health reasons these days. I'm not disputing that. But the reality is, is that that juice all got poured out of a container. In fact, if you were to use the old style that, that Jesus had, um, it would have been wine and celebrated a specific type of wine celebrated in the Passover feast and it came as they the grapes were what crushed right the grapes have to be destroyed and crushed to extract the juice to make the wine that was shared at the table and so we come and take bread and we take the cup and it is a very vivid picture of the sacrifice the love of Jesus and there's something very unique about it not just for you but for us so I want you to keep that in mind Paul says we should consider that so keep that in mind if we keep reading 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 19 the next little part I want you just to focus on is the fact that if we are to, fo- to, to join ourselves with Jesus in this way, through communion, not just as an individual, but as a church, if we are going to join ourselves with Jesus in this way, we need to be very careful about what else we're joining ourselves to in life. Let's read together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19. The little summary statement for this is that we shouldn't provoke God. Don't provoke God by also joining yourselves to ungodly pursuits. Let's read together. Verse 19, just to refresh our memory. Paul says, what am I saying then? He's just been talking about the table and the cup and the bread and how we we partake in that together. And now he asks, what am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. No, but I do say that when they sacrifice or what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And now he says, I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. 
Right? That's the part where he's talking about don't provoke God by joining yourself to ungodly pursuits. Now, I can guarantee it. I think, I think, maybe I'd be surprised, but I can almost guarantee that there's probably no one here today, or maybe even listening online, who probably go home and have a little sort of carved out you know, image of a false god or something that's sitting on their bench at home and probably not putting fruit up there or sacrificing something to it. And, and so maybe it's easy for us to go, oh, well, this doesn't really relate to us. What's Paul talking about, you know? Sacrificing to demons and things. But make no mistake, we all have our own gods. They might not be a little carved out image of some sort of weird looking animal person or something up on a shelf. But we have our own gods. We do. There are things that you sacrifice to. Your money, your time, your goods, your energy. There are things in this life that you believe will make your life better and easier. And therefore, you must give them attention to get those benefits. That's what a false god does. That's what an idol promises. And we all have them. Paul says, I don't want you to participate in their life. In fact, if you're joining yourself to Jesus, don't join yourself to demons, to false gods, to false pursuits, to ungodly gain. He says, don't join with them. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. And then he asked these two questions. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? God so desperately loves you. And this love is a jealous love. And we are so tarnished by that word because all the human expressions of jealousy are really bad. They're self-centered they're controlling. Those of you who have experienced jealousy in your life, either your own, you know how powerful that is, or you've been in a controlling relationship, jealous relationship with somebody else, you know how damaging that is. And yet, God's jealousy for us is pure. A jealousy which knows that anything outside of himself will destroy you. And so he clings to you and puts his arms around you and says, don't run to what will break you. I want your love and I want you to experience my love in the way that I designed it. And if we join ourselves to Jesus this way and yet we pursue all the ungodly pursuits and join ourselves to any number of other things, Paul says, are we provoking the Lord to jealousy, do we think that we are stronger than him? So that's the first point that I want to make. We've got to keep those things in mind. Paul just asks us to park those ideas in our head for a bit. Now I want you to do is to go back to the beginning of the passage, chapter 10, verse 1. And we're going to read through the first part of this passage and see if we can sort of try and discern what Paul's saying there 
And then we're going to finish on the heart of this. Here's how I would summarize the first part of the passage. Paul says, if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then reject the false flavors of this world. If you've seen, if you've experienced, if you've tasted the goodness of God, then Paul says, reject the false flavors that this world offers you. It's my second main point. It's the first part of the passage. But let's read it together. And um, we're going to take it in just two little chunks, just to sort of try and, I think, save a bit of time. But, but let's just sort of take it in two chunks. I'm going to give a summary statement for each chunk. So uh, verses 1 to 6, I would say that um, Paul is kind of helping us to think through here that be careful that your mountaintop experiences with God don't cause complacency in the valleys, all right? This is, see if you can pick up what Paul's saying here. Let me give you the summary statement again. Be careful that your mountaintop experiences with God, do you know what I mean by that? Mountaintop experiences? It's kind of a bit of a biblical illustrational picture of the fact that sometimes there are these really high points in our spiritual walk with God. Things are just... When people say to us, how's your walk with God? We just go, oh, it's so amazing. I've seen God show up in such powerful ways and we've just filled with just story after story, testimony after testimony of the goodness of God in our life. When, you know, when Tim says, hey, we've got a microphone set up at church, I'd love for you to come up. There's a big lineup of people just going, I can't wait. Because you've had mountaintop experiences. But guess what? We don't live always on the mountaintops, Right? There are valleys that we walk through and sometimes mountaintops experiences with God can cause us to become complacent in the valleys. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. This will become clear in a moment. They all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Now, pause there for a moment. What he's talking about is the Exodus, right? God rescues the slave nation of, of, of Israel from Egypt, they'd been there for 400 years, calling out in despair, God hears their cry, sends Moses, rescues his people, and they all come out. He's just been describing that process. Nevertheless, let's go back to the text. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Now, here's the point. Paul said they all came out, all of them. There weren't some that stayed in Egypt. They weren't the ones that God said, oh, I'm not pleased with them because they stayed behind. 
All of them saw God's redemption. All of them saw the plagues. All of them saw the power of God. All of them came out. All of them ate the lamb. All of them were rescued as the destroyer swept through and killed off the firstborn of Egypt. All of them experienced God's providence. All of them passed through the Red Sea miraculously. All of them saw God in a pillar of fire and cloud leading them through the desert. All of them saw that. All of them had mountaintop experiences. Some of them were struck down. Some of them displeased God. We're going to find out a bit more about that if we keep reading. We need to learn the lessons that history gives us and watch what you worship. Watch what you worship. That's where Paul's going with this history lesson. He says, listen, these things happened as examples for us. That was back in verse 10. So that we will not desire evil things as they did. What did they desire? Just read from verse 7. These are the lessons that history gives us. Watch what they worshipped. Verse 7, don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up. The Christian standard Bible says party. They got up to party. The party thing is not really the issue there. It's what they were celebrating. What he's referencing is a situation when Moses was called up to the top of Mount Sinai and God was giving the law and the people were down the bottom Remember the same people that had come through the sea? Same people that had experienced God's salvation? And they went, ah, maybe a golden calf will be more helpful. And they crafted one for themselves and they partied and they partied hard in celebration of their God that they had made. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. I can guarantee you, being bitten by a snake's not fun. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. This is the history of Israel's wandering through the desert. These things happened to them as examples and they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So can you see, if you've tasted of the Lord's goodness, reject the false flavors of this world. Here's the heart of the matter and we better finish up pretty soon. Because what I'd like us to do when I'm finished is come forward and remember Jesus in the bread and the cup. We're not going to have multiple tables set up today. So we'll just have to be patient and caring for one another as we come forward and share this and go back to your table. But where, where is all this leading us to? Because Paul's been asked us to consider things. Park this idea in your mind and hold on to that concept, he says. 
Where is it leading? Well, this is where I think it's leading. It brings us all the way back to where we began, sitting on a little sandy beach trying to remember that we have a faithful God. You have a faithful God who knows your limitations. He does. So, how do we respond to that faithful God? Well, we run from false worship and we cling to Jesus. And there is a pathway forward from here. There is. And I don't even know where your here is right now. I know where my here's are. I know the places where I sometimes just feel stuck. How do I move on from this? How do I move forward from this? I want to hear you to hear this morning that you have a faithful God who knows your limitations. Our response is to run from false worship and cling to Jesus. And I want you to know that there's a pathway forward from here. This is the last point. It sits right at the heart of our main passage. And it really is what our response should be to what we've been thinking about this morning. The first point that we identified from the second half of the passage, remember, we have one body joined by Jesus and it must not be divided. And then the second big point that we looked at was that if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, reject the false flavors of this world. And this now is at the heart of how we should respond to that. Verses 12 through to verse 14. Let's read it. Paul says, so whoever thinks he stands, whoever thinks that he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. I'm going to to leave the King James behind for a moment. But God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you might be able to bear it. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. The only response that we have to all of this is run away from idolatry. Flee from it. Watch what you worship. You might not be bowing down to a little idol carved into an image of an imagined God. And as I said, don't be misled. Our hearts are made for worship and they are always worshipping something. And if what you bow to isn't God, flee from it, Paul says. Run from it. We flee by exercising humility. A proud Christian is an oxymoron and a moron. <laughs> and I've been a moron. A proud Christian has failed to see two important things. One, that it was Jesus who did the saving. And B, two, that our hearts are fickle and frail. Paul says, be very careful. If you think that you're standing this morning, just be careful that you don't fall. A humble Christian knows that salvation has come by grace 
through faith in Christ alone. That our hearts are prone to wandering and must be bound continually to the goodness of God. He is who we worship. We also flee by training our hearts for a superior worship to a better king. Right? Every other idol in your life is a tyrant. Only Jesus is faithful. God knows we're dust. He does. He knows our limitations. And so he provides a pathway forward in the valley of your despair of sin. Our role is to trust his shepherd's staff. And to trust his gentle voice. And sometimes we need to just simply trust his painful correction. If you forget everything else this morning, I want you to hear this. God loves you. He's not disappointed in you. He loves you. He has a plan for you. He is jealous for your affections. He wants your affections. Because he knows as you spend your affections elsewhere, it hurts you. Have no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. Thank you that you died humbling yourself, your love for us, as Aaron's reminded us, to the world, yep, certainly, looked like a weakness. But man, they were wrong. What a strength. The all-reigning, all-powerful Son of God. And so we come to remember you. Lord, some of us are despairing of our sins, some of us are despairing of the temptation that we face, some of us are despairing because the, the siren's call of whatever false God that we have set up in our life is strong and we want to flee from it. We want to run to you. We want to partake in the table and, and join with Jesus and with each other. And we want to be wholehearted in how we do that. So we take the bread this morning and we take the cup and we do it together. And we cast all others aside and as a church, we simply come before the Lamb who was slain. And we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You are worthy of our worship. And so we reject all others for the name and sake of Jesus Christ. you know Jesus this morning as your saviour, I invite you, come to the table. Remember the one who loved you.